of creation are established right in the very beginning, chapters 1 to 3. Before we take a look at the Word, let's just pray together and seek the Lord. Lord, we just thank You for Your faithfulness, Your goodness to us, to manifest Your presence and Your truth among us. We thank You, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would never take it for granted. I pray that we would never treat it as a small thing, that You would minister to us, that You would speak to us, that You would make Yourself known, that we would get to experience You as a church. Lord, as the deer pants for streams of water, so our souls pant for You. Lord, we've been made by You and we're made for You. And Lord, there's only life with You. And so Lord, we cry out that You would manifest Yourself. You would be here with us. That You would speak to us. You would make Yourself known to us through the use of our minds, our five senses, through the use of our hearts. You would make Yourself known to us in every way that we would experience You, O God. We thank You, Lord. And You have determined to do that. You have determined to speak to Your church and minister to Your church and raise Your church up through the ministry of Your Word and through offices like pastor, teacher. Lord, this is Your plan. And so, Lord, we come to You. And we ask You, according to Your plan, according to Your ways, according to Your desire to manifest Your glory, that You would do that this morning. We need You. I need You, Lord. I need You so much. I need You in every way. My heart cannot beat. My mind cannot function with one thought in the least without You. And so we come to You. And we ask You, Lord, to, to anoint me and anoint Your people. Bless this time. Magnify Your name and show us Your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at a section of chapter 1. I've been through this section, uh, chapter 1, previously, but I want to focus in this morning in particular on the statements that are made about really the apex of God's creation, creative activity, and that is mankind. So we're going to start in verse 26 and read through verse 28 and on. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the, on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. These verses in chapter 1 of Genesis are so key and so important. The Word of God is given to us as our authoritative revelation from God of truth. And in particular, we're going to address this morning the whole issue of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be men and women? What is it to be human? And these verses for us serve really as a mountain of truth 
an island of truth amidst a sea swirling with confusion and swirling with many, many ideas of what it is to be human. If you study what it is to be human in secular schools, there's all sorts of lines of thought, all sorts of fields that address what is it to be human. Psychology, humanity and its understanding of humanity in terms of the soul, in terms of the psyche of man. Sociology, trying to understand what man is, and man is a a relational being, and if we can understand how he relates to society and to one another, we can understand what mankind is. There's lots of ideas in that. Biology would seek to define what man is. And in our modern society, much of what the ideas about mankind boil down to is, is he's just a bunch of chemicals and genes working together. In a sense, a, a robot pre-programmed by genetics and chemistry. Anthropology. Trying to look at where man came from. How he got here. Saying that really man is just a high-functioning ape. So there's all these ideas about what it is to be human and they're swirling about us. We live in a culture that just has all sorts of ideas. We grew up in this stuff. And we are naturally bent towards it. In and of ourselves, we want to hear all the other ideas but what the Word of God says. But this passage stands amidst this sea that's swirling and churning with all sorts of ideas. This passage stands, in a sense, as a lighthouse beaming its light out into that ocean for us this morning, Lord willing, to show us and teach us what it is to be human. I think the passage here, and I think the whole of Scripture, has two things to say to us in helping us understand what it is to be human. First is that mankind is a creation created by God. Mankind is created by God. He's a creation And that has all sorts of impact and implications. And secondly, that mankind is created by God in the image of God. That mankind is the image of God. So he's created, and he's the image of God. So let's take a look at the text. Let's just talk about the fact that he's created first. We'll hit on that, and we'll move on to what it means to be the image of God. If you look in your Bibles, open them up, look at verse 27. There's, uh, in your Bible, perhaps, I know in my Bible it has it kind of set off. It's tabbed in. Have that in your Bible. And listen to what it says. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And if you didn't know about ancient ways of speaking, you might think that's like a Yoda phrase or something. Like, why does it say that way? Why is it kind of one way and then backwards speaking? And that's not what's going on. It's Hebrew poetry. And it's given for the purpose of emphasis. And uh, the way that my Bible translates it, I think, is pretty good in terms of catching poetry. It's always hard to translate poetry from one language to another. But basically, another way to say it would be create, God did, man in his image. In his image, God did create him. Male and female, he created them. So it's poetry and it's emphasizing something here. The word create. God created. God created mankind. Here it's three times. Create God did. Man in his image. In his image God did create. Male and female he created them. So this section wants us to understand that mankind is a creation. A creation of God. It's used three times. It's actually used many times throughout this whole section that God creates. We don't want to miss that obvious of Genesis 1. And just, yeah, of course God creates, and then move on and not not understand that that has this huge implication. It's not here just because, you know, God's being trivial and He wants to make sure we understand this trivial point. It's here in Genesis 1 because God wants us to understand what it means to be a creation. What it means that we are created by God. How that affects our identity. How that changes how we view ourselves and view life and so forth. Says God created. It's interesting if you back up a little bit in there before that part of poetry. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. There's a plural there, right? Let us make man in our image. And as people wrestle with that, the different scholars wrestle with that, they, they basically come out in one of two ways. They say either he's talking to the angels, 
saying, let us all together make man in our image. And saying the angels somehow must have the image of God as well, which may be true. Or it's actually the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are all involved in creation. If you read your Bibles, all three of them are involved. Let us make man in our image. I tend to believe the latter. And the reason I believe that is because we don't see the angels making mankind in Scripture. We don't see the angels creating. It's God who creates. And so I believe when he says, let us make man in our image, he's speaking to himself, the triune God. So he's the creator. He's the one who has made us, this triune God. And if we understand that, we understand really our purpose. We understand that we're created by God, we're created by another. That has all sorts of implications for understanding mankind in his purpose. The book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life, you've perhaps heard of, and, and uh, I think it's a pretty good book, but, it, but we must be careful when we try to discern our purpose that we go back to the Word of God itself and say, what is our purpose? I believe our purpose is found right here. It's anchored in the fact that we are created by God. So our purpose and who we are must be directly related to God in creating us. Does that make sense? Maybe just think of if you're going to make something. If you're going to make something, you're going to make a, like a, a shed in your backyard. You're the creator. You make the shed, right? The shed's purpose is found in its shedness. Is it found on its own? Is it somehow, what does it mean to be a shed? And it has to kind of, you know, discern. And how am I different from the trees? And how am I different from the grass? And it's left on its own to figure out what shedness is? Where, where is the shed's identity? It's, its purpose? Who it is? Why it exists? Where does it come from? It comes from you. You made the shed. You're the creator. And so who it is, is defined by you. And probably it's there to store tools and lots of old rusty things that should have been thrown out instead of put in the shed, but, but its purpose is defined by you. So that's why this is a key point here, that God is the creator, because we want to understand what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be men and women? And it says we're created by God. Our purpose is not found by ourselves. It's not found even in contrast to our creation. Ultimately, it's found in the fact that we're made by the Creator. There are things we can discern otherwise, but, but ultimately we will end up confused if we don't understand that we've been created by Him. And in Him is our purpose. In Him is our identity. In Him we find why we exist. So we must root it there. That's the reality. Genesis 1 is just full of implications from that. All of life is defined by God and that He is our Creator. God is the one who determines our purpose, not ourselves. He made us. The Creator, the thing that makes, always determines the purpose of the creation. He is the one who determines our purpose. He is the one who controls our purpose. He is the one who reigns and rules over our purpose. He defines it. He determines our purpose. He determines what it is to be human. He determines who we are. And much of the Christian life is really just getting used to that fact. Just getting used to the fact that He is the one who determines my life. He is the one who orders my steps. He is the one who is in control of all things. Not, I'm not talking fatalism, I'm talking the sovereignty of God over all things. The Creator determines our lives. He determines our purpose. And much of Christian life is just getting used to that. And we squirm, don't we? We rebel. We worry. We worry. We regret things. We manipulate. We do whatever we can to find some sort of alternative purpose and not to have to submit God's purposes. Because He's sovereign in His creation. He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over, over your days. David says before a day, before he had lived a day, every day had been written in God's book. In Psalm 139. So God is sovereign over all things. And our purpose is found in Him. And Scripture testifies to that. And we squirm. We don't like it. But He wants to teach us about that. We talked earlier about some of this. 
We saw the link in Romans chapter 11. Remember the verse? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. We saw that that ultimate purpose in all of creation and in mankind is the glory of God. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. So our purpose is ultimately linked to His glory. He made mankind for His glory. That's why He made the shed. That's why He made mankind. For His glory. For His purposes. In His ways. It's all ultimately about Him. Ultimately, He is the center. He is our purpose. He is for whom we're made in every way. And He orders all our days according to that purpose. For His glory, ultimately. And we don't like to hear that, do we? And we struggle with that. And the question I think that comes up to our minds is, what sort of God is this? What sort of God is this who would order my days? What sort of God is this who would make me this way? What sort of God is this who would bring and allow circumstances in my life that I don't enjoy? What sort of God is this who would allow me to be sinned against the way I was as a child, perhaps, or, or even recently? What sort of God is this when everything is about Him? Even that? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. Now, there's some qualifiers we'll get into as we go so we understand what sort of God is this. But that is what sort of God He is. The sovereign God who has made all things for His glory. It's all about Him, we sing, and that is true. Every single thing is ultimately about Him and His glory. We are created for His purpose, for His glory. And so the question that we find ourselves at is, is He conceited? Is God conceited? Is He selfish and somehow disinterested in, him, in Himself and just capricious kind of does whatever he wants, when he wants, just to please himself. He gets his jollies out of inflicting hardships on us. Those are the sort of questions that follow, aren't they? I mean, they're natural for us to ask those questions. I remember talking with a relative of mine, and we talked about God and, and um, God deserving worship, and, and his, his response is, why? What's up with that? I mean, you know, it's like God's up here exalted, and I have to worship him? Well, why? Why? I don't want to do that. Why not me? What, what right does God have to kind of be the guy? I, I just want to be, my, I want to be on my own. I don't want to be obligated to that. That's the sort of things that follow. And I think there's two answers in Scripture to that. Two answers in Scripture to that. First answer that we see primarily is, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? So what is formed? Say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Should your shed say, why did you make me into a shed? I don't want to be a shed. I want to be a house. Wait, you made, you made the shed. You get to determine what the shed will be. And that's the first and prime answer in Scripture. Who are you to talk back to God? Obviously, there's a disconnect here. If you think it might as well be me, why God? Then you're, you're misunderstanding who you are and who God is. He's God. He's made all things. He rules over all things. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's omnipresent. He's glorious. Who are we? Talk back to him. That's the first answer, I believe, that Scripture gives us to that question, is God conceited? We have no right, ultimately, to question him. He's God. We're not. But the second question that follows, I believe, too, in Scripture is that this is a God who is fully trustful. He's fully trustworthy. He's a glorious God, and He's worthy of all of our worship. He's not some egotistical, self-centered, capricious God, just God that does whatever He wants because He's a sadist or something. That's not the God of the Bible. If you read through the Scriptures, that's not the Lord of the Scriptures. He's a God who's kind and faithful. We're called to love our enemies in Scripture, right? In Matthew, why? 
Why? Because God loves his enemies. Because God is a good and gracious God who, who brings blessing on the evil and the good. Those who hate him. Those who would rather he not even exist. Those who would, if they had the opportunity, perhaps even kill him. He showers blessings on them as well. He provides food and clothing and shelter and community and family and good economy and jobs daily on the evil and the good. This is a God who's a good and merciful God. He's not capricious. He's not just flying off the handle. He is merciful and kind. He is good. And more than that, He's good beyond our understanding. He's gracious beyond our understanding. Because we know there's more to that. Not only does He bless the evil and the good, but He Himself came amidst the mess of where our creation is now and bore the sins of these people who would rather He doesn't exist. He bore the wrath of God toward sinners on Himself. So any circumstance that we complain about is not as severe as the circumstance that He went through on the cross, bearing the wrath of God. So when we complain and we say, God, what is this? What are you, just selfish? Why are you putting me through this? He put Himself through much worse. This is a God who's worthy of our trust. He's more worthy of your trust than you are worthy of your own trust. He's more worthy of your trust than anybody else is worthy of trust. So whose hands do you want to give the universe and all creation? Yours? Or God's? He's a glorious God. He's faithful. He's kind. He's wise. He's even humble, which is amazing. Philippians 2, He humbles Himself below us. There's our sin. He's a God who's worthy. He's a God who's trustworthy. He's a God who's infinitely good and ultimately worthy of all our praise. So God is not conceited. He's good. Conceit is only wrong when the object of the conceit is unworthy. It's only inappropriate when the person who's conceited doesn't deserve to be lifted up in any way. But if someone were truly wise, if you knew someone who was truly wise, and capable, and good, and kind, and patient, and humble... Would it not be right for that person to assert themselves in some way? Would not you want that person to be promoted to a place of influence? Wouldn't you want that sort of person to be the one that leads everything and guides everything? How much more so God, who is infinitely competent and infinitely good and infinitely wise, how much more so is it appropriate that He be the center of His own purposes? That He be the center of our lives? That we be created for His glory? What other purpose would you propose that's truly worthy? There is none. And so it's right of God to put Himself at the center of all things. And it's right for Him to orchestrate all things for His glory. And it's right for Him to even use hard situations and undesirable circumstances in our lives to ultimately bring Himself glory. And to call us to participate in that glory. Because there's another aspect to this. If God truly is the most glorious thing in all of creation, if God is truly the most worthy one in all of creation, then the best thing He could ever do would to be to call us to participate in His glory, to experience His glory, to live for His glory, to receive His glory. I hope that makes sense. Think about in your own life, someone you love. If you love someone, what do you want to do for them? You want to give them the best thing for them, don't you? You want to make them happy. Right? I love my wife. I want her to be happy. I love when she's happy, and it makes me happy when she's happy. It makes our whole family happy when she's happy. And when she's sad, it makes us all sad. So I want her to be happy. So I will do what I can do. I will use the resources I have to make my wife happy. Now, it's very easy to make my wife happy. 
But I would want to do whatever I could. I find that just a little time every day walking around the block together and talking about life makes my wife very happy. And I love doing that. It makes me happy too. But if she were someone who loved fur coats, I would get her a fur coat and give her a fur coat because that makes her happy. If she's tired and worn out and needs a vacation, I want us to take a vacation. And if we need to go away and, and go to the beach or go to Hawaii or something and walk on the beach for a week, and I was able to do that, I would give her that because I love her. When you love someone, you give them the best you can give them, don't you? What's the best that can be given to anyone? Fur coats? Vacation? Is it not God Himself? Is it not to know God? To behold His glory? To experience Him? To find purpose in your life? Is not the best purpose that you could ever have to live for the greatest thing that there is? And is not God good to us? And is not God ultimately loving us to make us for that purpose? For His glory? Yes. Yes. That's ultimate love. That's why Christ came. That's why God did what He did. He loves His own. And He wants us to have Himself. And He wants us to consciously, volitionally, Love Him and live for His glory and experience His presence. God is our Creator. It's all about Him and that is right. And He is glorious. He's not conceited. He's good. He's good to give us Himself. He's right and good to make Himself the center of all things. So He's not conceited. He's good. And we squirm with that and we struggle and we doubt it. But life for the Christian is learning to get used to that. Learning to get used to the purpose, the glory of God. To be changed. And the call of God for us this morning is Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Which says, I must be the center. All things must be about me. Life must be comfortable. Life must be free of hardship because that's what I want. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed by the renewing of, by these truths of Scripture. Be transformed. Let your mind be changed about life. How you perceive yourself and God and life itself. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, what? You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His sovereign purposes, His sovereign will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will, it says. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's what He calls us to. So the question this morning, are you delighting that He is the center of creation? And He made you for His purposes, for His glory. Can you trust Him in this? Are you delighting in this even? Or do you see life differently than that? Do you see life in terms of your hardships? In terms of sins against you? In terms of failings and regrets? If only I could have done this. If only it hadn't happened that way. If only that person hadn't done that to me. If only I hadn't wasted those years. Instead, God, you use all things for good. It's all about you, all about your purposes, all about your glory. Even in my failings, even in the circumstances I have, it's about you. And I'm glad you use all things for your glory and you use these things. And yes, it's not to neglect the fact that there might have been real sin in, on your part or others, and that there's responsibility there, and you need to forgive and all that. Look at Joseph in the Old Testament. What, God what you intended for evil, God intended for good. His brothers really did it to him. Yet he saw above it all a sovereign God who was using all things for his purposes. And so he was able to forgive his brothers and welcome them in because he knew that. We, likewise, are called to live in light of that. So what is the issue for you that causes you to struggle? Is it a cruel boss? Past or present? 
Is it some particular sin? Is it a loss of a loved one? An untimely death? Those are hard things. I don't want to minimize that. You know, and God doesn't either. This isn't a God who just says, forget it. You know, just buck up. Stop it. I mean, He's a God who enters into us. Wants to comfort and meet us. He's not a dispassionate God. We must never misunderstand the sovereignty of God and His transcendence for dispassionate personality of God. He's able to be sovereign over all things and know exactly what you are going to go through and know exactly how hard it is and yet to be there with you and meet you in it. For He Himself has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. He Himself went to the cross. So don't, don't make that mistake. We do that. I do that at least. We think, oh, if He's sovereign and all over this, He must just be far away orchestrating things. He's not merely far away. He's near. He wants to meet us. And so what is the issue for you? What is the thing that you struggle with? Sometimes for me, honestly, the thing I struggle with is I came up here, part of the church plant, thinking we're just going to take New England for the Lord. And it's going to be about two years into it and we'll have like 2,000 people and we'll be evangelizing the area. And I had these dreams of that. And God didn't honor those dreams, at least not yet. And so I must be so careful not to live in light of that failed dream. God, why wasn't it this way? God has determined it to be just how He wants it to be. Exactly how He wants it to be. To maximize His glory. In our lives, in my life, and through my life. So I must be able to look at where we are, and we are in a very good place. We're very blessed. We're not 2,000 people, you know, and we don't have a converted governor in Massachusetts and all these things that maybe I dreamed about. But there's lots of good here, and it's all far beyond we... Is there a, no comment on Mitt Romney? I don't know the man. But, but there's lots of good here. Lots of good. And I must see my life in terms of being under the sovereign God who perfectly, perfectly, perfectly orchestrates all things for His glory and for our good, no matter what it might be. He's sovereign. Some important qualifiers, I think, fall from this text. God made mankind as individuals, as persons. He made them in His image. We'll get into that some more in a little bit. Made them in His image. And God never deals with mankind in a fatalistic way. He never deals with mankind saying, I'm sovereign, and what you do doesn't matter. He doesn't do that. Right? We know... We see people created in the image of God as persons in Genesis 1. We see in Genesis 2 and 3 the sin of man. Man, Adam and Eve, they rebel. And God doesn't just say, well, you know, that was in my sovereign plan, so, you know, of course I expected that, and let's move on. He doesn't do that. What does He do? He deals with Adam and Eve. He calls them to obedience in the garden. And then after they sin, He calls out, Adam, where are you? And He deals with Adam and Eve as individuals. And throughout the Scriptures, God always deals with His people as persons who are real individuals, who have individual identities and make real choices that make a real difference. And He always calls people to responsibility, accountability. We are culpable people. He is sovereign, but that does not negate the fact that our choices are real. We make real choices. So the Bible doesn't teach this a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. It affirms it entirely. But it also affirms culpability. And so we see throughout the Scriptures teaching on this. Joshua 24. Joshua says, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. I mean, if it's only about God's sovereignty, that verse ultimately means nothing. Why should He say choose for yourself? If you're just a robot, you're not. But He is sovereign over that. And our choices are real. So God constantly says, Choose for yourself who you'll follow. We call men to repent and believe the Gospel. Because they are responsible before God as those made in His image. Again and again, he relates to mankind this way. Robert Greensmead says, the creaturehood and the personhood of man must be held both together and in tension. 
When theology stresses creaturehood and subordinates personhood, the fact that we're created and, and subordinates the fact that we are people who make choices, a hard-faced determinism or fatalism surfaces and man is dehumanized. When personhood is stressed to the exclusion of creaturehood, man is deified and God's sovereignty is compromised. The Lord is left standing helplessly in the wing as if man had the power to veto the plans and purposes of God. The Bible affirms both these things. We are people, individuals, who are responsible and culpable, accountable for our choices, yet God reigns and rules over all. We are created by God. We are created in the image of God. Those two things go together without eliminating the other. God is sovereign over all things and all our choices entirely. He's able to do that. And we get confused. How can, how can it be both? How can I... How can I make a real choice if God's sovereign and over it and already determining even what that choice would be in the outcome? I mean, then aren't I being forced into something? That's how we think. But it's no problem for God to do that. It's no problem for you and me to do it. We can't do that. I can't force someone to make a decision and say, well, that's your decision. You know, you made it. No, I forced them to make it. I mean, it doesn't work that way. But with God, it's not a problem. And the scripture affirms those things clearly. It's, it's not a problem. Now, another qualifier. I don't mean to say that man has free will. There's a bomb just threw out. I don't mean to say man has free will. Because no being in all of the universe has free will. Not even God has free will. Because God must make choices according to who he is. Right? Can God do evil? I hope the answer is no. No. By virtue of the fact that he's God, he cannot do evil. He cannot choose evil. Period. Is he, does he have free will? No. He must choose according to who he is. And so we must also choose according to who we are. Mankind is limited, not entirely free. And that's a whole other message, just to realize that if mankind is captive to sin, then he will choose according to who he is, right? And so sin will have something to do with everything he chooses. So I'm not trying to say that, that's, that somehow you have free will. But I'm just trying to say and emphasize that we are responsible and culpable as made in the image of God, yet God is sovereign over it all. And if you have questions about that, so do I. <laughs> and I would love to try to answer them for you. This is how it is. This is our Lord. So let us hit on that next section, the next idea in here that God created all things and God created man and women Male and female, he created them, and we'll get into male and femaleness in a later message. But he created us in his image. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So, and later on, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Nowhere else in Genesis 1 is there any creation made in the image of God. Mankind alone is that way. Mankind has a unique and special role in God's purposes, unlike the rest of creation. Genesis 1 should teach us to have a very high view of mankind. And if we are not careful reading through Genesis 1 and reading through the whole Bible, we can miss the main characters. If you were to be asked who are the main characters of the Bible, what would you say? Maybe Moses, David, Abraham, Jesus. And those are important characters, but the main character of the Bible is God himself. And then a secondary supporting actor, in a sense, is mankind. And then after that is us, other people, I mean other creations, but but so God is the center of all things in the Bible, but mankind is an important supporting actor, so to say. He has an important role. No other creation is made in the image of God. Mankind is. So we should have a very high view of mankind. In relationship to God, our view of mankind should be very low. But in relationship to God's purposes in creation, and the fact that man is made in the image of God, our view of mankind should be very high. That's why murder is prohibited in Scripture. Right? 
says, these people are made in the image of God. How dare you murder someone made in the image of God? Not only how dare you murder someone made in the image of God, but James would say, how dare you curse someone made in the image of God? How dare you insult someone made in the image of God? How dare you be disrespectful to someone made in the image of God? There's all sorts of implications here about how we treat people. Whether they're Christians or not, they are made in the image of God. And nothing else in all creation is made that way. And so we are to respect people. There is a dignity of mankind that must be honored. And it is right to love others and be kind and respectful to all people, no matter who they may be, because they're made in the image of God. Now, when we read the whole Bible, we see that mankind is sinful. And sin has ravaged mankind. And there are terrible, terrible consequences. And there are terrible, terrible people. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 and 2, if I understand it right, we're all terrible people ultimately. And so you might think, well, why should we respect mankind? Well, mankind still bears the image of God. And so we must be respectful of people and honor them because they are made in God's image. Well, what else does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean? Have you ever thought to that? What does it mean to be made in His image, in His likeness? Is it because God has two eyes, a nose, a mouth? Two arms and two legs. And when we get to heaven, we're going to see, ah, you see, yeah, I see. Your image, yeah. Looks just like me. You even got blue eyes. No? Yeah, if, if God has eyes, they must be blue. Since mine are blue, but no. Um, God is not physically made in our image, but what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I would... I'm going to explain that in a minute, but I want us to understand that we are made in the image of God. And when we want to understand who we are, one point is we are created. The second is we are the image of God. Sometimes we understand that we're made in His image and we can kind of think, well, we kind of look like Him in some ways. Maybe one aspect, we're like God. But the essence of who we are is we are imagers of God. We are creations that are in the image. We are the image of God. We are the image. It's who we are. Mankind is unique. To be human is to be the image of God. To be the image of God. It's the essence of who we are. We are the image of God. And He made mankind on the earth to rule over all the rest of creation to be the image of God amidst creation. That's who we are. And if we were in a different church, I'd say, turn to your brother and sister and say, you are the image of God right now, but I won't do that. We are, we are the image of God. Made by God. We are the image of God. We're made not just to look kind of like Him, but to be His image. Now, we are not perfect representations of God. We do not mirror God. We do not image Him in that, that we're omnipresent, right? I mean, who, anyone here omnipresent? Let me know. Um, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, can, can do whatever you will to do. Anyone like that? David? No? No. So we're not like God in every way, but in significant ways we are like Him in what's called His communicable attributes, the things that can be translated to us. So we are the image of God in a broad way, in many ways. It's the essence of who we are. So we are rational beings. God is a rational being. God thinks. He wills. He thinks through things. He ponders. He considers. He meditates. We are rational. We think. We ponder. We process. Our minds are important. They're never to be neglected. Having a mind and thinking images who God is. God is one who thinks and ponders and has thoughts. We do too. We are moral beings. There's right and wrong. We discern evil and good. We get them mixed up sometimes, but that's who we are. God is a moral being. God knows there is evil and there is good. We are made in His image in that way. We're moral beings. We're relational. God is... I mean, relationship is not our idea. You know that. It's not, it's not some sociological evolution thing that came about. You know, just for the benefit of ourselves, we learned how to relate. That's not how it is. We are relational because God is relational. 
God, the triune God, has been fellowshipping with Himself forever and will be forever. And if we read our Bibles and understand our Bibles rightly, if I understand our Bibles rightly, part of what salvation is is to be welcomed into that relationship. To be there and to commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as they have communed. So we are relational. He is relational. We are volitional. We make choices. God is one who makes choices. We're made in His image that way. God is creative. He makes new things. He, God gets excited about making things and bringing things about. He's like an artist in a sense. We are too. We create. We take delight in making things. Now ultimately we cannot really make anything. We recreate. We are to be ones that recreate or recreate. God is a speaking God. He communicates. We are speaking people. So all these ways are how we image God. There's many other ways too, but, but it's who we are. We, unique among creation, are ones that image Him in these ways. Not only in who we are, but in what we do. If you look in the passage, God says, let us make man in, the image, in our image, and then it says what? Let Him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the things on the ground, on these aspects of creation. He is to rule in who He is. So it's not... Our imaging is not just in who we are, though it is. It is in what we do. We are to rule. And so the essence of humanness is to be the image of God and to act according to the image of God. That's what it means to be human. To be made in the image of God. To be the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 and the rest of the Bible. And mankind is... A wonderful creation. Amazing and glorious. And if you're worried that I'm going to break into Barney the Dinosaur song right now, let me say some more things. You know the song, You Are Special, You're the Only One, There's No One Quite Like You? I won't do that. Because there's another part of the story. Though I believe that we are special, we're not the only one. We are special because we're made in the image of God. Our specialness our self-esteem must be anchored in God. There's no such thing ultimately as self-esteem. It must be anchored in God. We are made by Him and for Him. But we are special. But there's something more to the story, and we're all aware of that, I think, either personally or from the Scriptures. That is that this glorious image of God, that God set over His creation to glorify Himself through imaging Him and His rule and reign and all He is over creation, this glorious plan in the sense to do this and Adam and Eve has been tragically corrupted. Now God is not fooled by this. This is not like He had to go to plan B. He knew it was going to happen. He understood. Matter of fact, He uses it to work out an even better plot, ultimately. But something tragic has happened. This beautiful and glorious image of man has been damaged and defaced by the horrors of sin. And so though we are in the image of God, sin has come in and corrupted things and twisted things. And yet we still retain the image, and that's throughout Scripture. Nowhere does it say we've lost the image of God. Murder is always wrong throughout the Bible because we, can, we are the image of God. Yet it's defaced. This image is corrupted. It's been damaged. It's been twisted. Any Star Trek fans here? Next Generation. I, I was actually bigger into the original one, but I watched a little bit of The Next Generation. But you know the story in The Next Generation of the Borg? And the Borg is this alien species that assimilates every species and every, every technology and so forth, takes it in and makes it its own, adapts and so forth, and then uses it. And the Borg gets a hold of Captain Picard, right? And, and it captures him for itself, and it does these implants and everything, and he comes back, and, and he's actually something different, but he's still Captain Picard, but it's a twisted picture of him, right? He's gray and pale, and he's got a different personality. He's got implants and stuff. That's a picture, I think, of sin and how it affects the image of God. And the Borg, if you will, is sin itself. And it comes in, and it twists the image of God. And it's not as glorious as it was. It's marred. It's twisted. It's under now the control of another. Sin. We are like those under 
the Borg. And now, if you read in Genesis, if you read the story, though in chapter 1 he says it is very good, there's the fall in chapter 3. And then chapter 6, when God looks out on mankind, says he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. That's the situation now, folks. We're a bunch of Borg members running around. And yet we retain the image of God and there's something glorious in that, but it's twisted. And God was grieved. God was not distant in His sovereignty just saying, oh, you know, I knew this was going to happen. Cool, I'm cool with this. He was grieved in His heart that He had made man. He was sorry He had done this. God feels things. He knows all things from the beginning to the end, yet He feels it and He's there. And He's grieved. And at that point, He could have just wiped man off the face of the earth. Forget it. This is ugly. It's not what I wanted. But, the whole storyline of the Bible is about a God who is working throughout history to redeem mankind and to restore the image of God among men again. Rescuing people from the Borg, rescuing them from sin, to reestablish His image. And there's one who comes made in the image of God without fault, not captive to the Borg at all not submitting to sin, who's called the very image of God. As a man and as the God-man, the very image of God. Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And this one comes to rescue mankind. He comes more than that. That's, that's a key part of His mission. He comes to be the perfect image. He comes to be everything God wanted mankind to be. He comes to accomplish what Adam and Eve and you and I failed to accomplish. To be the perfect image of God. To display the glory as one in the image of God. To fulfill all of what mankind was meant to be. To please the Father in every way. To fulfill all the promises, all the covenants. To be the ultimate man. That's Jesus Christ. The perfect image of God. And that is to God's glory. Because no one else could do it but Him. God the Son. He is glorious. He fulfilled everything God wanted. Mankind to be. And more than that, He is pleased to call us brothers and sisters. He is pleased in Himself to say, come to me. Turn from your boredness. Turn from your sin. And these cheap things. Find your purpose in me. Find your life in me. Put your faith in me, the one who has been the perfect image of God and fulfilled all things. And be mine. And walk with me. And be everything you were made to be. Follow me. And as he calls us to that, he is the image of God who came and fulfilled all things and to the point of death on the cross. He took our sins and our rebellion and, and the things we've done to mar this image. And He bore the consequences on the cross, the wrath of God, towards those who would face this glorious image. God's wrath was poured out on this one, the Son, so that we could inherit what He earned that we could be counted forgiven, so that we could be counted as His. Isn't that glorious? That He has counted us brothers and sisters? We don't deserve it. He didn't have to do it. He could have done all these things, perhaps, in some way. I don't know how it would have done, been, but, and not included us. But it's to His glory that He includes us. It's to His glory that He's pleased to call us brothers and sisters, to call us into Himself, and to find in Him the perfect image of God. To be forgiven and accepted to be with God. But it's not done with that, though. Though that's glorious. It's not just that we are forgiven. Though that is wonderful. 
It's not just that we're accepted. It's not just that we have to bear the penalty of sin and be separated from God forever. But God's out of work even more than that that goes with that to His glory. He is out of work to restore the image of God in you and me. He wants to restore His image in us. He wants to deal with sin. He wants to work through us. So in Scripture we see verses. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And it goes on to the the promises. So God has determined that He is going to restore the image of God in His people, in us, in you, in me. He wants to restore this image. He wants to remove sin. And the Son came to remove the penalty of sin. So there'd be no more penalty. He came and He removed the power of sin. When there's new life in Christ and the Spirit dwells within you, the power of sin and its hold, the Borg no longer controls you. In a sense, you're no longer having to be controlled by it. You can start taking some of those pieces off or however it would work. So the penalty and the power and God is at work to remove the presence of sin. Though we dwell in bodies corrupted, He is intent on restoring the image of God. And that's what much of life is about. Him restoring the image of God. And it starts with His work. And it's dependent on His work entirely. 2 Corinthians says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we behold Christ and understand Christ and see His glory, there's actually something powerful that happens. When we behold the Gospel and our forgiveness and our justification to be forgiven and to be counted clean. And when we behold His glory, and when we behold and understand that He's purchased us for Himself, there's power in that. Beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed by Him. But we mustn't stop there, because though it is something that He does, it's of His power. He's sovereign over it. Like earlier on, we are also making choices ourselves. And so Scripture teaches both things. In the restoration of the image, God is at work. God is doing this, but He also calls us. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. In line with the fact that Christ has come, in line with the fact that we belong to Him, He is at work, but He's calling us to respond in line with that fact. Put off. Put on. Refuse to live the old way. Follow the new way. Do it together, not merely on your own. Put off your old self. Ephesians 4 is even more aggressive. It says, put off, we are told according to the truth that is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Be active in participating in the restoration of the image of God in your life by putting off the old self which belongs to your former man of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. So God is after the restoration of this image. To be human is to be the image of God. It's to be created by God, and therefore dependent on Him. That image has been scarred and marred. But Christ came as the perfect image fulfill everything mankind was meant to be, and not only that, but to conclude us in himself, that we might be forgiven and we ourselves might be formed into his image. And as the band comes up, as we close, just some things to think about. I I would want us to, to kind of feel the impact of this passage. It should impact us, the truth in Genesis 1, and following should impact us in every single way. It should impact us in how we see ourselves and how we see life. To be human and to be a Christian human in particular is to be one who images the glory of God. And that's done in many ways because the image of God in creation in Genesis 1 was set amidst creation, not isolated. So there are many arenas where we're to exercise this image, where we are to grow in this image. Just to think a little bit, and I'd want us to take this this week and think about how am I called to image God in my life?
That's what redemption is about. That's what it is to be in Christ. As an individual, relating and communing with God, part of how we image Him. Friendship, how we work. Using our gifts at work is how we image Him. Creating things, loving others, doing it wholeheartedly. Worshiping, we image Him that way. As a family, those of us who are in families, creating a home, raising children for His glory. That's how we image Him. That's how we glorify Him. It's very nitty-gritty. God is not a, an abstract, kind of theoretical God. He wants to manifest these things in the nitty-gritty of life. He wants to meet us in these things. Housework, hospitality, family worship. As a church, God wants to image Himself in us as a whole as individuals and as a church. How we love one another. Sharing the truth, biblical fellowship, evangelism. Evangelism is seeking to reestablish the image of God. It's a glorious thing. It's going back to our purposes in Genesis 1. It's realizing those purposes because we're looking for people to be redeemed. And that image afresh in them. As people who live in a culture and a community, there's ways to image God. Enjoying and participating in arts, participating in our community, participating in government. Ways to image God. There's a vote on marriage coming up in the Massachusetts legislature. I think a wonderful way to image God is to let your representative know what you think about that. What you believe the Bible teaches, that marriage is for a man and a woman. That's a way to image God right there. There's, there's countless ways to do this. God wants to glorify His name, wants to meet you and use you as He establishes and restores the image of God in creation for His glory. With that, let's pray. Jesus, I just thank You that You are the perfect image of God. And Lord, that as we're called to respond to You and follow You and to participate in the restoration of your image that we can rest in you because you have already finished all things. You have already been the perfect image and you are our righteousness. You're our only hope. And we don't do these things because we can earn anything but merely because we belong to you. And you are doing a great work in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your glorious purposes. And I pray, Lord, by your grace, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and test and approve what your will is, your good, pleasing, and perfect will. You are worthy, O God. Be magnified in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So much more than I ever dreamed, and so much more than I deserve. Your mercies surround me, reminding me anew that all I have. That all I have is come from you. It's all from you, for you have crowned my days. With overwhelming grace, Lord, you're so good to me. Though troubles fall like rain, this precious truth remains. Lord, you're so good to me. Yes, you're so chose me, you saved me, and you made me your own, promised that you would never leave, soon one day you'll call me, and we'll see face to face, till then, till then you've given me a taste of paradise, for you have crowned my Go away.